morning, TC and some racing bee in a flash. Ruthann Miller still has Sunrise Marathon sweats and tees plus sun visors, they're priced to go. Also for you athletes running the race tomorrow, she's having a special on WD-40, get this. Odds makers are giving even money on relative newcomer Kim Greer's chances against the one-woman Panzer Battalion Germany's Heidi Beck in the women's division. Good luck, ladies. Let's avoid a pileup. This just in. Spectator parking is now available at Maurice Minifield's Pear Orchard. That's 12 bucks a day for cars, 24 RVs and campers. That does not repeat, not include water hookup. T seeing some racing bee in a flash. What does that mean? <laughs> I rewatched that scene. I mean, we have I have subtitles on, so I saw what it said, but I did like rewind it and like was scratching my head, and I still didn't understand. Of course, I like go to the internet, TCB, Wikipedia, scroll all the way down. Like, what could it stand for? Taking care of business, I think, is what is what he means here. Taking care of some racing B in a flash for for I don't know. I guess like maybe. He's going to try to do it really quickly. Uh, I, I don't think I've ever heard that lingo, though. I have never heard of that. That is... <laughs> TC and some B. <laughs> Chris is predicting the future right here. <laughs> like, that... Uh, that like that idea where you, like, uh, shorten all the words together. Yeah. Like LOL yeah. or whatever. Uh, okay, wait, hang on. Now that you bring that up. Yeah. Why is it that when you see LOL... It's that thing within LOL and LMAO where like one reads as the actual four letters or the three letters and the other one reads out loud for its full thing. Oh. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, lol. I always think of lol or LOL. I don't think, anytime I see LOL, I never think laughing out loud. I think lol or LOL. Like LOL means more to me, I think, than laughing out loud, right? That, that has taken on a stronger meaning. But then LMAO, I guess, yeah, laughing my ass off, but... I don't, I guess I would say LMAO and not LMAO or whatever. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, like, I, I think it's because like it, there's four letters on LMAO. So you feel like you really want to stress the uh, O part of the LMAO. <laughs> so you just like, you get like LMAO. Okay. never mind. We can cut this out. It's like a little, it makes no sense. Well, Let me come back in. Well, and, the, uh, no, this is fine. Uh, I, I also did just want to say, cause you were speculating on, or just like, Musing on this topic, uh, it takes me back also to an early use of like these abbre short abbreviations. Um, the movie, yeah, it's in Sleepless in Seattle. Do you remember that movie? Yeah, yeah. Tom Hanks' son gets like a little girlfriend, like a friend that's a girl, and they might be like, you know, Tom Hanks is like, hey, what are you, what are you two doing? We we're just hanging out, like you know. But Tom Hanks is like, y'all better not be kissing or whatever. Um, but when Tom Hanks meets the girl she's like h and g it's like what and she's like hi and goodbye but i've never heard h and g used as an abbreviation <laughs> except for that movie i uh i saw fleabag a couple years mm, ago okay and uh in season two they drink a lot of uh g and t's yeah gin and tonics okay gin and tonics yeah they always call them g and t's in cans uh, and that's always huh. stuck with me, like just some GNTs. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I guess I've definitely heard GNT as an abbreviation. I don't know that I use it, but uh, but yeah, I also I should probably watch Fleabag, right? That's a good. That's a good oh, show. Oh yeah, no, no, it's so good. <laughs> yeah, well, hang on, this isn't this isn't a Fleabag podcast right here. What 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 are we talking about here, Lee? We're talking about the 1990s CBS TV series Northern Exposure. 
a huge hit at the time, pop culture phenomenon. Today, not so much. 30 years after its initial release, it's uh, it's kind of fallen out of the limelight. It's never been available on streaming. Pretty much the only way you can watch this is uh, a DVD box set. Maybe you get lucky with some Blu-rays if you're in a, a, a specific region that you could watch these Blu-rays. Or maybe get a region-free Blu-ray player. Uh, but anyway, we're talking about Northern Exposure because this is the Northern Overexposure podcast. My name is Lee. I'm a big fan of the show. And Charles... You're here as uh, every episode that you watch is new to you. So this is sort of like your first time watching the series. Yeah, exactly. Every single episode is a new one to me, but it's not just me because at the end of the podcast, Mm -hmm. we always have on somebody, well, usually have on somebody that's never seen the show before. So they'll be giving us their thoughts on the episode, giving some commentary. They'll be just as lost as me, except a little (laughs) bit more lost. Yeah, you've got about five seasons under your belt pretty much this this far, and we're almost done with season five. Uh, but this newcomer will be completely, I think you've called it before, like we just dropped them in the middle of the jungle. Yeah, this one's going to be like even more wilder because it features like a very small, <laughs> uh, not even recurring character. Yeah. Just like recurring plot device. The so green like, man, maybe? Yes. Yeah. Also, no Joel in this episode. Yeah, I I have found myself actually realizing that I like the episodes with Joel. Yeah. I really do. <laughs> yeah. Like, I think the standout episode of this season and really of all of Northern Exposure of has all time. been... Of all time. <laughs> has been a fish story. Mm-hmm. It's so good. Okay. And it's centered around Joel. Yeah. And I think that, you know... <sighs> I'm not saying the other characters aren't strong by themselves. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just more drawn to Joel because we were with him on the very first scene. Yeah. We were with Joel Fleischman. We're understanding where this guy's coming from. You know, Jewish doctor from New York coming being dropped over at Sicily, Alaska. We're seeing all of his tribulations and trials. So whenever we deviate from that and go into the lovely townsfolk themselves, mm-hmm. which I love, I always feel like there's still something missing, an absence of things. Yeah. You could definitely say that Northern Exposure is one of those like character-driven ensemble cast TV shows where really each of the each of the main cast is like a very complex character with their own histories and their own motivations and and you know they they can totally they can totally serve their own plot line without Joel. But I mean, as you said, we've just been with Joel this whole time. It's the same with Joel, like he's just as complex and developed, but we've seen him go through so much and we've been there with him. Uh, and I, a lot of times guests on the show will, will say that he is a bit grating and um, just sort of like an annoying character at times. But, you know, we've seen Joel through a lot of episodes, so we know like the multiple sides of this man. All right, Lee. Well, who are the writers and director for this episode? Okay, yeah, let's do these credits. We've got Season 5, Episode 22, Grand Prix. That's what we're talking about today. The director, Michael Lang, who we know from Cottage for Uncle Manny, A Cup of Joe, and A Bolt from the Blue. Now this episode, Grand Prix. Pretty sure he continues to direct throughout the series. Something I didn't... I don't think we've talked about this yet, Charles, but I was, you know, just looking through his old credits and seeing what else he's done. He also has uh, a radio show slash podcast called From the Set with Michael Lang, I guess, where he talks about making TV, making movies and stuff. Uh, we should 
We should hit up Michael Lang and see if he wants to come on our podcast. <laughs> I wonder if he would. Yeah. I don't know how big his, I guess, I don't know if he has a, if it's really a podcast or it's maybe more of a radio show, but maybe he'll have us on. I don't know. We could try to like yeah, finagle I mean, our way into that. <laughs> I mean, at this stage, like everyone has a podcast. <laughs> yeah. You know what I find most, okay, I'm sorry to derail this. Yeah, no, um, no, I'm gonna, We're going to jump right back into course as soon as I'm done. No, I want to hear this. Yeah. But like, I'm finding that more and more uh, people that work in Hollywood have their own podcasts. I'm not talking about the actors themselves, though. They definitely do. Like very every C-list upwards mm-hmm. actors. It's got their own little podcast right there. But uh, there are like producers and writers that have their own. And they're always like, I don't know the law behind this, but they, they're kind of <laughs> spilling secrets oh, about wow. the industry sometimes. Like they'll be talking about it, like, yeah, I think this project's about to come out and it's going to be coming out with this and this and it's got these things in it. And you're like, I don't think that's available to the public. <laughs> like, <laughs> Did you sign an NDA? Didn't you sign? Yeah. That's like, I don't know. So I'm wondering, is, like, is it because they're not signing NDAs or anything so that they could just say... Mm-hmm. you know whoever's just tuning in they could just vent their troubles because sometimes i've heard they'll talk about like actors and they'll, they'll talk about like oh, how yeah. much of an a-hole they were and i'm like can you defamation i know you can, know you can say this yeah. i know you can say this but like are you allowed to like say it in like a public <laughs> airwaves type of situation like what is going on well hopefully we don't slander uh too many uh <laughs> too many stars on this show um or like give away any secrets about the future of Northern Exposure. Man, I really wish they would, um, you know, one day, I don't know, come up with like a revival or a reboot or like maybe one day they'll make it available for streaming. I don't know. We'll see. How is it not? I know. I, like, I, know, I know why. I know it's the music rights. Yeah. Yeah. The music rights. It's going to happen like the day after we finish the podcast. Too, I swear. <laughs> oh my Lord. Um, yeah. Oh, jeez. Anyway, why yeah. don't we talk about more credits? Right. More credits. Uh, the writer for this episode, Barbara Hall, I believe we talked about her before because she wrote Rosebud, Baby Blues and Northern Hospitality before this. Uh, we've mentioned this already, but she started working as a creative consultant and a consulting producer in this season she, I think, comes from, uh, I know she comes from I'll Fly Away, her work on that series, which was um, also show like showrunner David Chase. So I'm imagining when he switches over to Northern Exposure, he brings her along. But that's, uh, that's that. Let's, yeah, let's jump into the episode, Charles. Yeah. So beginning of the episode, we got Chris with his monologue that we talked a little bit right here. And more importantly... Uh, there's two things that are happening. The second half of the monologue that Chris is giving, he's saying that they got some winners in town and they got some losers here too. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really unusual. At, at the very beginning of the episode, when I heard that line, I thought that that was a strange thing to hear. We've got some losers here too. Mm. We're getting into a, like a binary definition between people that succeed and don't succeed. Yes. Uh, we're already designating them before the race even starts. That we're saying, like, this person is going to achieve success and this person is destined to lose. Uh, I think that's going to play a very important part in the episode. And the second thing that we're going to be seeing is the arrival of this new doctor, Dr. Grant Saperstein. Mm-hmm. Saperstein? Saperstein? Oh, yeah. I forget how they pronounce it. Maybe Saperstein. Um, what's his first name? I already, cause Grant. I, Grant, I want to okay. say in my notes, I call him Dr. Sap. <laughs> He's got like, it's interesting. He drives up in a, like a convertible Mercedes, but it's not like 
shiny. It's kind of dirty. So I don't know, maybe that just suggests he's been driving for a long time, right? Because he steps out, stretches, and he's like looking around and he's like, okay, all right. And then it cuts to the uh, opening. Yeah. Well, his license plate is Rhino (laughs) P. Rhinoplasty, I'm guessing. Yeah, that's what I'm guessing too. Yeah, that actually took a while for me to figure out because I don't know, my brain wasn't working when I was watching it. I was like, Rhino P. I, I remembered like Rhino being the um, prefix, I guess, for that, you know, I guess meaning nose or something. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Rhinoplasty. Just I mean, that makes sense. I mean, you look at the, you look at the animal, <laughs> you know, it makes sense. It's got a big old horn. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, something uh, I missed just before, you know, before Dr. Saperstein arrives, um, we learned that there are eight days until this uh, wheelchair racing event, the you see the banner, First Sicily Sunrise Road Race. So, yeah, this episode was going to basically span eight or so, you know, eight days, I guess. It's a pretty long, um, pretty long time span. Right. I wonder, I didn't think about this, but I feel like most episodes probably take place over the course of like a day or two, right? It shouldn't be too long, but I could be wrong. I think so too. It's like a full week. This is definitely a full week. Yeah, very rarely do episodes. Uh, very rarely do episodes ever go for like a long, sustained period of time. I yeah. feel like you're not going to get like a time skip. Like that's not going to happen. Yeah, you get. I guess you keep the urgency maybe more if you have. Um, if you just have everything happen in like a short span of just a day or two. But I don't know. Yeah, something about Northern Exposure. It does. It just doesn't feel like it needs to be urgent to be entertaining. It's not that kind of show. That's not like an urgency thing. Right. I like uh, one last thing before we jump off of this. Mm-hmm. I like Grant's fashion style right here. It's got a little suede jacket mm-hmm. and I don't know if this is like a really 90s thing or what, <laughs> but like he's got the jacket zipped all the way down to like it's barely hanging on at the bottom. Right. So it's still considered quote unquote zipped. Yeah, but like, it's like barely. on him, but like, but it kind of reveals more of like the fashion underneath. I like guess he's yeah. showing off more articles. Right. More and I think that's like a very casual, very, uh, <laughs> I just don't see that a lot except in like, I don't know, like really hit places. <laughs> yeah. Do you wear your jacket like that, Lee? I can't remember. Mm, I do like to unzip it a bit, but I don't know if I would, I don't know if I've ever really zipped it all the way to the bottom. That is definitely a statement. Yeah. I don't think I, yeah, I don't think I have the the guts for that to go all the <laughs> way to the bottom. Um, but yeah, we got this new doctor guy. I guess we don't know that he is going to, we don't know exactly his role in this episode yet, but the the vanity plates, Rhino P, you know, I think that gives away like he's some sort of hotshot doctor or something. Right. Well, we get the opening credits and then we get to another plot line involving Marilyn and her... I think it's fair to say it's his boyfriend. Yeah, they're together now. I think we learned later in the episode they've got like a six-month anniversary, like during this span, during this like span of days somewhere in there. Uh, So they've been together for about six months. That's pretty pretty cool. And uh, let's see, he was, I forgot to write down his first credit, but, you know, we obviously we've seen him before. This is Ted Banks is the name of the character. The actor Tim Sampson. Uh, We first see him in the episode, uh, this fifth season episode, Altered Egos. Um, unfortunately, this is his last role on Northern Exposure. And, you know, when I was preparing for this episode, looking up the actors and things like that, I was like, oh, is Marilyn going to break up with him this episode? It kind of seems like, you know, their relationship is a bit strained for this episode. 
but no, unfortunately, I'm not sure what happened. He, the actor does continue to keep acting after this. Um, that is a shame because I think it's really nice that Marilyn has a significant other to play off of. Yeah. And it, I really like, I like them together in this episode a lot. Like in the first episode, it was a bit like, you know, calm, timid, like, you know, it's kind of hard to read because Marilyn is pretty, uh, pretty hard to read at times too. But, um, I don't know, really saw some, really saw some nice things in the relationship, but I also just saw some, I loved seeing this character struggle with what's, what he's got to deal with in this episode, you know? Right. Well, let's talk about him a little bit. Yeah. So they're both at a break and they're having a meal together before Ted springs the news that he is now in charge of the whole construction of uh, of Lester's new house. Mm-hmm. He is the man with the plan. He's doing the uh, electrical work, I believe, in the entire, yeah. the entire house. Like, the entire so I think house it's like right the there. biggest job he's ever had, I think. Mm-hmm. And one thing that really stands out in this scene is that there's a lot of subtext in his wording. He's starting to say that like, he, he as a Lester, is building 3,300 square feet of kitchen alone. You know, he's talking about all this land that Lester has available to him. And I think it's important to note that like Lester is this individual that is laying claim to all of this land. Because mm-hmm. at the end of this yeah. plot line, we're going to see discussions of like what it really means to own land. Right. Yeah. I didn't think about that. But yeah, that is, that's how they choose to sort of like wrap up the episode, this plot line. So that's important to note in this very first scene. Also, you know, we underline the idea that, you know, Ted and Marilyn are boyfriend and girlfriend and Ted is serious about this. He's like, you know, this, this is a a nice big job for me. It's going to be like a lot of money. Makes me think about, you know, finally getting some financial security. I can start thinking about the future. Um, so he's ready to make some big steps, I think. And, and he wants Marilyn there, you know, I mean, they don't, they don't say this explicitly. It's definitely like implied. And there's a lot of great, especially between Marilyn and Ted, there's a lot of great, like just reaction shots where they don't say anything, but the, you know, I feel like also a lot of scenes end with just like the characters thinking, you know, they don't mm-hmm. like, they don't say a finishing line, but you just see them think. And then it cuts to the next scene. And so the next scene we have with Ed starts another plot line for this episode. Ed is, it almost seems like he's interviewing this person, um, but she's in a wheelchair. Um, I believe we see like she's missing her left leg, you know, but she's pushing her wheelchair. But I was curious, Charles, I don't know if you were like keeping tabs on that. Did you, well, first, did you notice in this scene, she doesn't have a left leg? Yeah, I noticed that one immediately. In a later scene, she uses crutches to get around, but we don't see, you know, below the waist in that scene. I was just, because I'm just curious. I'm like, does this actress, is she actually missing a leg or um, did they hide it in that, um, in the wheelchair? You know, like there's Mm -hmm. a, I wonder if we ever see her racing. I'm trying to, I think we do see her like in her racing wheelchair later, but it's kind of hard. I don't think I really caught it. Anyway, this is Kim Greer, the character Kim Greer, played by Christine Kirsten. This is, according to IMDb, this is her only role. Uh, I thought she was pretty good. So I I was curious, like, you know, wondering why, Hmm. if she didn't pursue a career in acting. Yeah, well, that just makes it sound like she really, like, she really is uh, disabled. 
I know maybe like person, it'd be less likely for her to get roles or something. Right. Like she just came on because they were like looking mm-hmm. for this. And she's like, oh, okay, I'll, I'll do this. Um, I have like a little idea. I did like community theater. I can probably just do a go on like one episode and get out. Yeah. I know that the person that comes on at the end of the episode, that person is an actual like wheelchair racer. Oh, cool. The one who um like takes over. Subs in. Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. Well, do you know so, his name? I saw it in the credits, but I forgot. Ah, uh, no, okay. I forgot. We'll, we'll, I'm sorry. We'll find it at the end. We'll, we'll say. Yeah. But I know that he is an actual racer, so it wouldn't it, so it wouldn't surprise me if she was actually, you know, a, uh, a competitive too, yeah. wheelchair racer as well. Interesting. So I think that's really neat. Yeah, I have to imagine that all of those, all of the people, like the, I guess you wouldn't, like the, I, you could call them extras because, you know, they don't really have like speaking lines or anything, but all the participants in this wheelchair race i imagine they are athletes they're all real life athletes which i think is cool i wish we would like see their names or something give them a little more glory because they're just mm-hmm. like you know racers but but hey it's pretty cool to see right so ed's escorting her kind of interviewing like you said along with maggie and i think that there's something going on with her elbow mm-hmm. she has mm-hmm. like an injury and she's saying like well i gotta be in like tip-top shape in order to get to this race i want to make sure that i can achieve the best time and you know, straight out win it. And Ed is, I don't even really know like the word to describe what he's doing. It's, it's a little bit complicated for me because I know that he's concerned with the screenplay and he's saying like, maybe I got to like take this week off, got to really sharpen my script because I'm really getting piled over by like other scripts. They're like sharing my same action beat. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I got to like work on this thing, but in like, he also prescribes her some um, some like off-brand types of things. So yeah. I'm not too sure what direction he's going with in this scene. Yeah, I think Ed is still very much like trying to find his path because we know at the beginning of this season, uh, the episode Three Doctors, it turns out that Ed has been called to be a shaman. And like, will he take that call? I don't know. And then later, I think in... I'm pretty sure it's the episode Rosebud, um, but it's somewhere in that in that area of the season where he's like back to writing his script, and he's got like I think there's even another episode where he's got like an agent that might sell his script. So he's teetering back and forth between shaman and uh, filmmaker. I think he's like in some moments he's kind of found the perfect middle ground because his script is sort of about a shaman. So, but in this episode, I see what you're saying, Charles. It kind of I would say it kind of seems like he's avoiding the shaman thing. He would rather, you know, he feels maybe it's the whole, uh, what's it, what the green man, like he's self-conscious. He doesn't, he doesn't uh, have enough confidence in himself that he sort of like wants to distance the shaman thing. And he's like, I, I should just stick to being a filmmaker. That's what, that's what I know. That's my guess. Cause he does that in this scene. He's like, oh no, I'm so busy. I got to do this, uh, got to do the script thing. By the way, the the movie that, you know, the reason why his script got rejected is because this other movie apparently has a lot of the same action beats that he had in his own script. And that movie was On Deadly Ground, which stars Steven Seagal. It's a real movie. I actually watched the trailer and <laughs> it's pretty goofy looking, um, but I'm sure a lot of fun. It's like 
something to do with like uncovering some weird like oil drilling. I don't actually don't even remember the plot. I just remember like Steven Seagal and like this native woman and they're all, they're all like are literally like dressed in like Eskimo furs and stuff. It's kind of a caricature in a way. But Steven Seagal with these natives trying to fight like the big the the man like oil industry or something. <laughs> Uh, I know that Steven Seagal, like, obviously, troubled man, but, like, <laughs> uh, apparently he is the worst host that SNL has ever Ooh. had. Yeah. Why, why so? What was his, uh... Uh, just, like, really demanding and, mm. uh, belligerent and aggressive toward the writers, and he was insisting that certain sketches had to be done this way to make him look, uh, more macho. Oh. So he was like, I gotta, you know, if I get into this comedy sketch and we're, I'm squaring off against this fella, I gotta win. And, like, the writers were like, it's a comedy sketch, man. Like, what, <laughs> what do you mean you gotta win? Like, you're not actually gonna punch him. Like, and he was, like, really insistent on all these things, so he really just... Uh, it was just like not a good fit and wow. they talked about it in like within the show itself because I think like a year later Nick Cage was hosting SNL mm. and in his monologue Nick Cage is freaking out he's saying like oh man I'm doing terrible hosting SNL I must be like the worst host ever and then Lord Michaels comes out and he's like no 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 that's Steven Seagal <laughs> <laughs> Well, too bad for Ed. Steven Seagal beat him to the punch on this one. He's going to have to rewrite a lot of portions of his script. I think that's for the best because I didn't like the whole action uh, direction that he was going with that, you know, when he met with the um, that agent and that whatever episode that was. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so th what happens at the end of this scene, though, is that they ask Ed for some advice on alternative medicine and... Ed uh, prescribed her some pulsant. I don't Pultis. know how to pronounce it. Pulsant, I think, is like a. I'm assuming it's like an like sort of a pasty ointment or something. Yeah, that's what I'm getting from the vibes. Both like context-wise, because I know what happens, and also like onomatopoetically as well. Like that just sounds like that sounds like an ointment. Pulsant. Yeah, <laughs> it has the right sound to it. Um, yeah, so yeah, I think at the end of that scene, they like he gives her like a. He's like he's going to give her some poultice or something. That starts his storyline, and uh, I guess lastly we've got Maurice, who is like actually hosting this uh, this race, this wheelchair race, and he's got like a welcome dinner. I'm assuming it's inside mm -hmm. the like Sicily Church Hall building. All the athletes from across the world, it seems. There's all these different flags. Um, everyone's here. How did how did Sicily get this? You know, I guess is there just really not a lot of representation for these. Um, you know, disabled athletes or? I mean, I guess I it's guess like the not. same thing. Yeah, it's the same way that Sicily gets like really world famous chefs and uh, <laughs> just, just obscure things. <laughs> it just happens right there. Yeah. Uh, Maurice is bragging about how he had like a change of heart because whenever he was incapacitated, you know, saying like, <laughs> you know, uh, things shouldn't be this way. Now my eyes have been opened and I think that we should be celebrating people that are striving their best. So that's why I'm doing this wheelchair race right here. Yeah. Maurice says like, you know, I had this injury and it landed me in a wheelchair. Actually, I don't think I remember seeing Maurice in a wheel. Actually, wait, take that back. Cause I do remember now wasn't like Ed pushing Maurice in a wheelchair whenever like his, um, do you remember his uh, greenhouse? Like, yeah. So he was in mm -hmm. a wheelchair. My bad. Mm -hmm. I was like, I keep thinking of him in crutches, which he does do a lot of crutches. But um, 
But uh, if you missed uh, our previous episodes, this actor actually did injure himself, I think maybe horse riding. I'm not sure. Uh, so he, they wrote it into the show. He's got like crutches in a lot of episodes. Um, but I think later we find out that there might be like more, not necessarily sinister, but like, you know, not as like pure of heart reasons for why he wanted to do this. Of course, like he's like a businessman, but uh, well, I guess we'll get into that. Is it in this scene where Ed is Ed there? Like he's sitting next to yeah. Ken Greer. He, mm-hmm. She's like talking about um, the poultice. Like it does. It's like maybe not really working. I'm not sure if she says it's that, smelly, but that yeah, she does say that it's smelly. And Ed says it's because of the gray fox duty. So he's using like scat from a gray fox. Just a little bit. He says kind of as an emulsifier. But I mean, you probably could have used anything else. Like yeah, if you, you just literally if you just taken... needed an emulsifier, maybe there's <laughs> maybe there's more to it than that. But I don't know. I feel like the, I mean, yeah, <laughs> I'm not a shaman. It's really <laughs> it's really the fox duty that that brings it all together, <laughs> literally. <laughs> um, so yeah, but yeah, this is where the three plot lines have been established. So who should we take on first? Let's continue with Maurice. Uh, so. Maurice here, obviously he's hosting this uh, wheelchair race, but he's got his own uh, quote unquote horse in the race. Like he wants to represent himself as like this athletics department, like business. I don't know. He's, he's kind of trademarking himself and he's got his own racer. They mentioned the, the name of the racer in this episode. I just, I definitely didn't write it down. Is he Swedish or something? I don't think so. No, he just has like a, I think his last name's like Z or something. Hold on. I bet I can figure this out real fast. Cliff Zweibel, played by David McSwain. Cliff Zweibel is Maurice's racer. He's like, I think he's the predicted winner, I would assume. He's just like the best, I think. And if I'm not mistaken, like Kim's race is separate. Like it's a women's race and men's race. So Kim trying to win first place, she doesn't have to compete with uh, this Zweibel guy, it's like a whole other, um, I think Chris says it in that opening soundbite, he calls like the German Panzer or the German tank or something. He uh, calls the other racer that Kim's competition is. Anyway, Maurice got this, uh, his very own racer and he's trying to design the perfect racing wheelchair. I'm not skipping anything, right? It, this is the next time we see Maurice. No, yeah. this is it. Cool. Because I think this is a little later in the episode. We got a lot of other plot, but um. Right off the bat, we can kind of see like Maurice and Zweibel aren't really gelling. Like Maurice is like, you know, you're going to have to wear the proper attire to represent my team, Team Minifield. Like we need you to wear this hat that has the logo on it. And Zweibel starts to call Maurice out being like, you know, I, I read this, I heard this article in the Alaskan Business Magazine about how apparently Minifield Communication had bailed out on employee health plan. So is that why you're doing this whole thing? Like, is that your motive? You're trying to like look better as like a healthcare or like, you know, thinking about others. But I don't know. In reality, you don't practice that. Right. And I think it's important to note that Maurice is really, really obsessed with the way that things look on the outside. So he's saying like, Mm -hmm. you got to wear the hat because (laughs) when the New York Yankees come out, they're all wearing Yankees hats and you're wearing this bandana and it it just doesn't mesh with my brand right here. (laughs) And he is putting a lot of emphasis on this. But I also think there's something to be said about this wheelchair that he's trying to make. It's got like the Minifield X1000 or something like that, some futuristic name. (laughs) And 
Uh, it's obviously got state-of-the-art things, carbon framing, uh, light wheels. It just got all the fancy schmancy things. And it makes me think that, like, it, it's not explicitly said in the scene, but is this something that the racer, Zweibald, is comfortable with? Because it seems to me that a wheelchair's primary function is to help those that cannot walk be able to move. And while they are pursuing a sport, and it's a very, you know, it's very noble that they want to push the boundaries of what they are limited by, it kind of defeats the purpose of it if you're kind of just looking to have like, quote unquote, the fastest wheelchair, like you're no longer competing on strength then, you're competing on something that you could buy. Like an unfair advantage, like it's not his, uh, well, at least for Zweibel, I think, I think this is what, I would assume Zweibel's point of view is like, I don't care what the wheelchair is, I can win anyway in any chair. Mm -hmm. So he doesn't care then. But I also, I think you're onto something here with like, what Maurice is trying to do is almost kind of like insulting to Zweibel. It's like, oh, I'm going to make you win because I'm going to find the chair that beats everyone else. And then on top of that, can we even say it's like sportsmanlike if you have like this wheelchair that is inherently better than the other racing wheelchairs? Uh, sorry, I think they're called racing chairs. I, racing chairs, I think, okay. is what they refer to them as. Like, because I'm gonna don't want to get confused with because there are wheelchairs in this episode, then there are racing chairs as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Is that kind of what you're getting at though? Yeah. I, I just think it's like really odd that like this device wasn't mainly built for that. And yet you are engineering one that's trying to do that. So therefore I, I find it like a little bit uncomfortable looking at that. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I honestly have no idea how it actually is in real life. Maybe this actually is how it's played <laughs> and it's all fair game. And there's a mentality and there's a reasoning behind it. And I'm just being uh, stupid. I'm just not realizing it. Yeah. But I mean, I guess like at the end of the day, it's not like the the chair isn't an engine. So like, or it isn't like, I, yeah, I wonder how much, you know, like, cause like in baseball, there are like rules about how the baseball bat should be, because if it's like right. a certain way, that is totally cheating. So I wonder how regimented the specifications have to be on a racing chair, or if it really is just like, as long as you have a chair that the, that makes the racer the most comfortable like, you know, it's it's not really the chair that's doing the work. It's the racer and their arms and stuff, you know. I really don't know. Right. But I like I like the that train of thought you're on, though. Kind of like, does this defeat the purpose? Is this, also, could this be insulting? Because obviously, Zweibel and Maurice, I think from the get-go, like, they, they aren't on the same page. I don't think they're going to make a great team. Right. And we could see this in the next scene involving Maurice and Zweibel, which is where they're back in their house. And, oh, I want to also talk about, like, this third person that's with them. I think his name is Mike. Okay. I was, so many people in this episode look like Doc Saperstein to me. Mm-hmm. Like, I thought this was also the doctor. I but it doesn't so make too. sense that he would be there. Like, it makes sense that he'd be there because he's, so we'll learn that Dr. Saperstein's there to be sort of like the attending physician for all these athletes because Joel's out of town. But yeah, apart from that, I don't think he would like go out of his way to hang out with Maurice and Zweibel. So. Right. But there is another guy there, right? So Yeah. They got this third person here. Um, let me make sure. His name I think is it Mike, is right? Mike because I saw yeah. that in the credits. Someone is um, credited for Mike. Right. And I, I do think there is maybe a deeper reasoning for why these actors all look alike. I'm, I'm not entirely too sure. I think maybe when we get to the episode, I think that maybe when we get to the end of the episode, I'll be able to form my thoughts more coherently on this reasoning. Okay. But <laughs> you know what? So what's going on in the scene is that 
Maurice is showing Zweibald footage of the second favorite, um, the Frenchman Petier? Petier? Something, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and they're going through footage and Zweibald saying like, all right, well, at this certain part of the race, instead of using strategy, I just used brute force to win it. Mm -hmm. And Maurice looks down on him for that because he's saying like, you know, I'm not out here for you to just win this race. You're here to beat the world record. Mm -hmm. I'm out here trying to achieve more to that. But Zweibald's saying like, I'm not not about that. Just mm-hmm. trying to win. What's interesting, uh, this will come up later, but Kim, you know, she sort of has a pivot mentally going from like, I'm not trying to win, but I'm trying to beat my personal best record. Like that's her frame of mind by the end of the episode. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I mean, that's very, that's different things. That's not saying the same thing, but, but kind of like, just made me think about that because now Zweibel's like, you know, I, I'm, I'm here to like take home the gold. You know, you're, I'm not trying to like break a record for Maurice or whatever. Right. He wants it for himself. And he even finds it insulting when Maurice is, you know, trying to chime in, trying to be a coach when he obviously has never done this in his entire life. He is a backseat driver. Mm-hmm. It's just trying to say like, oh, you should have done like this and this. And he's like, so I was like, I'm telling you, like at that moment, that was the best call. Yeah. Like that was it's like, I'm that like was it. you, Maurice, like what is your experience? I'm an actual racer. You know, I know how this mm-hmm. works. Like you, you haven't been in a wheelchair race. Um, is this a scene also with the Reebok or is that later? That is the very next okay, scene. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, sure. So, um, Maurice, uh, has like a box, a Reebok shoe box. Um, and he's like, Hey, you got to take off those ratty old shoes and wear these Reeboks. Like I already signed a deal with the company. Uh, also like you're going to have bullfrog sunblock logo on the back of your Mm -hmm. racing chair. I think it's also important that at this moment, he's already given up a part of his identity by giving up the the bandana. Yeah. He's He's already got got the hat hat in the scene. You're right. Uh, but he, he points out like, look, the shoes, it doesn't matter. My feet aren't part of the equation when I'm racing. So what does it matter that I wear Reeboks? It doesn't matter to Reebok. Like I'm not going to be actually like using my legs in this race or my feet. Uh, and plus like his shoes, he chooses these because they're the shoes that he races in every single race as like a superstition. And like, to me, I kind of like the performance here. It's not so much that the character's like, I, I can't do this. Like I'm, this is like, I'm very superstitious. I will not win without my lucky shoes. He's just like, look, this is just how I do it. Like, I'm going to do it the way I want to do it. He does say it's a dumb superstition, but I don't think he's really like, you know, I don't think he's like going to get start getting scared if he takes those shoes off. I think he's just like, screw you, man. Like, this is the shoes I want to wear. Like, this is how I do it every single race. Don't change that. Right. And I think it's kind of poetic that he wants to wear these lucky shoes, though he has no need for shoes whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Maurice is trying to insist to be like, you need to wear this specific shoe. And he's saying like, what difference could it make? And Maurice (laughs) is saying like, the difference is money. Yeah. Promotion. That's what stokes the whole machine. He says, yeah, I hate to be the one to break it to you, but sports is business. And, uh, Zweibel, there's some fun lines in here. He says, like, uh, Maurice says, wake up and smell the Gatorade. Hate to be the one to break it to you. Sports is business. Zweibel says, like, you know, I have an IQ above room temperature. So, like, that's enough for me to at least know. Like, I don't know. I don't know what he says, but I just like the idea. IQ above room temperature. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good line. (laughs) I think Maurice also has, like, a sort of a good counter. Um, I don't remember exactly what he says, but he's saying, like, I'm not asking you to promote like a cigarette company or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Like you're not, you're not promoting something heinous. Right. You're promoting something that like is actually used for sports and people that race. So 
get off your high horse and just try to play and get into the game of business. Yeah. I think it's like, I'm not saying that's a winning argument, but it is like kind of a good counter yeah. to like say like, all right, I'm not, I would understand the legs that you are standing on if I was making you promote something that was like counter to what we are doing, but we're not I'm just simply trying to make some money and you're my investment. And you know, if, uh, what I say goes, and if I want to make some money, I'm going to make some money. I don't need to run this by you. It's not a crazy argument. Yeah, he, it makes sense. And it's like, look, we, it's like, this is the compromise they have to make as uh, like, you know, I don't know if teammates is the business partners or whatever, like mint, um, what's the word sponsor. And mm-hmm. I don't know what you would call it, but. But he's already compromised in my yes. opinion. Yeah. Uh, and also like from the get go, I don't think this has ever been a great partnership. So despite like this being a valid statement from Maurice, like he's not wrong. I just don't think like they want to work together, obviously, because uh, Zweibel like throws the racing chair. <laughs> he, like it's like, get this out of get this out of here. I don't want to see this anymore. <laughs> and he drops out of the race. He tosses uh, Maurice's like hat back at him. Hey, props to him, man. I think it takes <laughs> a lot of guts to. You know, he's been training his whole life for this. I mean, not necessarily. This is just like a a race that showed up on his radar, but he is a racer. Yeah. So for him to walk away from this is still a whole lot. For sure. Yeah. So unfortunately, we don't see Zweibel in the final race, but um, I guess you want to get to that one. We do have this uh, real life. Let's see. I've got his name here. Jacob Heilvel is the name of this racer. The actor, I guess, or the actual athlete, as you're saying, uh, who plays in this episode, the character Soong. Yeah, so Maurice all of a sudden has like a new racer. Apparently they don't speak the same language, uh, but I guess it doesn't matter to Maurice. This is like the new hot shot, like he's the new up and coming racer. Also, it turns out Maurice um, like is betting on the second place guy, like the, or like, you know, the, the, the opponent. The Pettier. Yeah, oh, okay, it's the French guy. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's like, even if I lose, I'll, I got three to one bets in Las Vegas on this guy or something. So I'll, I'll come out on top either way. Yeah, uh, I think that one of the most interesting things that happens in the scene is that Chris is talking to Maurice about this. And Maurice says, like, I got three to one. Like, that's where the odds are. It's guaranteed. And Chris says, like, whoa. Where do I get that action? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like three to one, really. Because like, it seems like Chris is like, I can't believe you would do something like that. But then the joke is, he's like, can I get it on this? Like, mm-hmm. And Maurice like, I don't, I don't think he says anything. He just like points to the guy. Like he's like points off screen, like go talk to this like bookie right. over there or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, the race kicks off with the song uh, Blitzkrieg Bop by the Ramones, uh, which is pretty cool. We get to see some uh, some wheelchair racing, and there's also a really cool like um, hard cut to like serene nature. But that's the other plot line with uh, Marilyn and Ted like on a picnic. But it's a cool cool hard cut there. Yeah, and that basically wraps up Maurice's plot line. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, pretty short one. Yeah, I'm not too sure what to make of it when it's sealed away in a vacuum. I, I think mm-hmm. that we can talk about it more once we delve into the other two plot lines. Okay, but for now we can kind of see that like. You know, there isn't really like a grand motif. It's just Maurice uh, being Maurice, yeah. just being a little bit of a shady businessman. Trying to take control of things where he's maybe like taking control where he doesn't need to, uh, but trying to make the most money out of it. Yeah, it's not working for him. Uh, the next plot line, what do you want to jump to? Why don't we jump to Ed's plot line? Cool. love it. So Ed, uh, we already talked about he's prescribe some poultice for Kim Greer 
And also uh, there's Gray Fox scat in that poultice. Uh, but the next uh, shot we get is um, actually it's a pretty cool one, I think, because uh, it's like this very continuous shot. Uh, I think it starts with um, Dr. Saperstein. You know, he's like driving around and he's on the phone at the same time, like yelling about lawyers or something else. He pops out of the, you know, he parks, pops out of his car and starts walking alongside Ed. He's like, oh, I'm glad I caught you here. Uh, you're prescribing mugwort. Is that what it is? Mugwort? Mm-hmm. Um, something called mugwort for uh, Kim's elbow. But like, you know, this is a... This is not a good thing because I've already got my diagnosis and my course of treatment. And technically this is like interference and this could go really bad if like we're not, uh, we can't have two different doctors basically. Like, you know, you could work in sync, but that's not happening, obviously. I also just wanted to point out what's really cool about this shot as well. Not only the continuous motion, like following along them, it gets like closer to once, um, Dr. Saperstein steps out of the car and then it sort of becomes like this behind shot. Like we're tracking behind them. So we see their two backs and then they do, I think, eventually turn to each other and have like a conversation where we cut into more close-ups and stuff. Yeah, I do agree. There's some nice camera work that's being done over there. Uh, I think that there's some subtext going on in here. I think there's two instances of it. The first one is the ointment that Ed is trying to prescribe. Mm -hmm. Uh, Dr. Saperstein says like, this isn't working. This is just like, uh, you're you're trying to cover this up with some sort of outside substance mm-hmm. in order to heal this tennis elbow. Now, he doesn't say that like what her problem is, is an internal thing. He doesn't say that at all. He's just saying like tennis elbow isn't cured by a simple ointment, mm-hmm. which is something that you rub on the outside. And we later see that the problem that Kim is going through is external validation something that's also dealing with the outside. Mm-hmm. The second instance of subtext is the car that he drives. So he starts the scene off by arriving in his little uh, beat up Mercedes Benz. Like it's not, it's still a Mercedes Benz. Mm-hmm. It's still nice. It's a little bit discolored. It's got some dirt on it. And at the end of the scene, they end it with a button by saying that patients will take everything from you in a drop of a dime. If things head south, they will sue you and they will take you for everything that you're worth. And in fact, the only thing that I have left is just this car. Mm-hmm. That's the one possession that he has. Yeah, it turns out that he, I I don't think he says explicitly, but we can infer that he was sued for medical malpractice. He used to be like the one of the best or work, you know, work with some pretty prestigious uh, plastic surgery, I guess, where he comes from. And uh, yeah, I think that car is a great symbol because... Uh, as we said, like in that first scene, it's like a nice car, but it looks kind of dirty and unkempt. And at first you could write that off as him just like having to drive so far, but you know, it still is a bit, you know, ratty in this, in this scene. So I think it's like maybe something that started off very flashy. He has now kind of like sunk to, he's like, Ed, why do you think I'm here in Alaska being this like athlete physician, you know, for this uh, wheelchair race? Like this is not something that I would normally do. Um, and kind of like, you know, put some fear in Ed that like you, you could get sued by your patient. Right. He's putting a lot of emphasis on this material, this car. Mm-hmm. That is the way that he measures himself. And we're going to see this theme play out throughout the rest of the episode, this idea of materialism and having more than what you need to have. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit of an overshoot right here. But 
before we get to that, let's get to the next scene with Ed. Mm-hmm. So in the next scene with Ed, um, oh, actually, I did want to just mention Mugwort. There's a lot of stuff on Wikipedia about Mugwort, but just the one thing I think is interesting is that uh, it does tie um, indigenous peoples of North America using Mugwort for a number of medicinal purposes. It's a really sort of a long list of things. So uh, you know, it makes sense that a shaman might use mugwort for some reason. Uh, but it turns out this mugwort uh, has caused a, oh, this is the this is the last scene, but Kim now has a rash from the mugwort. That's what mm. uh, Saperstein was like, look, you're going to get sued for medical malpractice. The next scene with Ed, however, the green man actually is back in his apartment making a sandwich. He, le- he left the uh, refrigerator open. He's listening to some Betty Servert music really loud. I think it's funny when Ed pops in, he's like, Ed, this Betty Servert is dope. I've actually never heard of that musician, um, but it's this Dutch indie rock band. Uh, hmm. I think the album came out like the year before, but maybe was released in America like kind of around this time. Um, album called Palamine. But it sounds pretty cool. I like it a lot. Um, I think Green Man is right. And I think Ed is uh, right for having this tape or whatever. <laughs> um, but anyway, Green Man's back. Back to his same thing about sort of shaming uh, Ed for not having enough confidence. Uh, I, was, I wrote down, man, we really need Leonard right now. You know, we need Leonard here. But of course he's not. Graham Greene's not in this episode. Yeah, I think it's kind of nice that Ed is a little bit more proactive. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. he, like immediately says like, all right, you're, you're leaving. I can't, we can't have this. We could see his confidence there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we see this because this man represents obviously self-esteem. He comes out and says it. He's like, I represent your low self-esteem and I'm manifesting right now because you're finding trouble having to help against Kim's external validation. Mm-hmm. So you got two ideas that are not necessarily conflicting, but come from different areas. So right. low self-esteem comes from within. External validation seeks help from others. But mm. in the end, they're both not like a natural state to belong in. So Ed needs to be able to treat Kim with this external validation. This is the first time that we're getting the instance of this word right here. They're really emphasizing right. external validation. The demon of external validation. So he's going to have a, his own personification. Right. And Ed just shoes him off. He's like, all right, no, we, I'm not doing this. Right. Um, you know, I, I thought, uh, do you remember like the introduction of the green man back in that, uh, the mm-hmm. previous episode, kind of creepy. Like it definitely reminded me of like, cause there's like, there'd be like flashes of him before we actually like really get to see him full on. Also in this episode, if you remember in the last episode, like the green man, when you would see him, he would always have like sparkles and like, uh, oh, yeah. sparks and things. And his eyes would f- like flash and glow. Thankfully they didn't do that again. This episode, I guess it was probably like too annoying and too much of a hassle to try to VFX that on. Mm-hmm. So we don't, we don't get that as much. But I almost thought for this episode, I have forgotten um, how it does play out. But I was like, oh, is this like, I like this scene as a sort of like harbinger of doom. Like, Ed, you're about to run into this. You know, you think you're, you know, you can talk me out of here and get me out, but you're not ready for this demon of external validation. And I was like, oh crap, this is going to be scary. Like I thought, I thought <laughs> the, the, this external validation would like, rear its ugly head or pop out or something. But actually it turns out, I think Ed, like Ed is the one that seeks out external validation, which I think makes sense for the, the plot line. I was just, um, was expecting something different, I think. Yeah. 
I do think that there's some weight behind this guy's words saying that like external validation is something that's really dangerous to be seeking. But in another way, it's kind of like it's hard to measure your own talent and skills without Right. Like, yeah. Without some sort of measurement against another thing. Like, if you were just using your skills in a void, you have nothing to compete against. So, I guess, like all things in life, it's like a moderation. Yeah. I think everyone, you could say most people have a problem with external validation. Most people have a problem with self worth and self confidence, you know? So, I think it's, we can all kind of relate uh, to these demons, as they call it. And uh, I think it's so cool that. It's a fun, uh, this plotline is a fun representation of how a shaman might uh, treat their patient, like what they have to do. Very different than like what Joel would have to do for their patient. Uh, But it's, I don't know, it seems like a lot more mythic in a way. Right. The next scene that we see with Ed is him checking up on Kim, probably to make sure that her rash is doing okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, We see her with the, yeah, like some bandages around her tennis elbow. Mm Mm-hmm. So presumably, like, yeah, she's trying to cover up the rash. She's trying to help her get it better. But she's lifting weights. She's trying to push herself to the limit. And Ed comes in and talks to her about her obsessive need to win. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, he just kind of comes out with it and is like, you know, talking about external validation. He says, that's the problem, Kim. You want to win. And that's all you're thinking about is winning. You're confirming your sense of self-worth through outward reward instead of through inner appreciation. She says, Ed, you sound like a daytime talk show. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, that is, you know, actually I do have one complaint, but I think it's solved by a deleted scene in this episode, which I can explain uh, shortly. But for this scene, it kind of felt like Ed was just kind of calling her out without really like, I don't know. I don't, I ne- I didn't necessarily get that from Kim that she was just like obsessed with winning, obsessed with coming in first place. And there is one deleted scene I think that would that would come before this uh, at some point in the episode. That sort of hints at that. It's Kim and Maggie and Ed, and uh, they're sitting in the brick. Ed is sort of like worried that Kim might be mad at him, and you know, doesn't say this directly, but he's like kind of worried that she might sue him. And she's like, "Look, Ed, it's fine. Like, don't worry about it. Uh, I really appreciate you know." your stories that you're giving me and the, you know, all the treatment that all the care that you're giving me, even if it's like, you know, the the elbow's not getting like a ton better yet. And then Maggie at the end of this deleted scene is like, Kim, you know, you've got your, your injury on your elbow. What if you just like, you know, go out for this race and just like have a good time. Like don't overdo yourself, just have a good time. And Kim says, have a good time. And like, you know, she kind of like, as if she doesn't buy that for Maggie, she's like, I'm not going to, take that as an option, you know? Mm. And I think this scene, it's not, it's not super direct about it, but it's enough for me to, I guess we don't necessarily need the scene. It was deleted, but without it, the scene with Ed, when he's telling her, like, you've got a problem with external validation. It feels like Ed is like inferring a little too much because we don't see that. I don't think we see many scenes with Kim, uh, as the type of person who's like, I have to win. I have to win. Like number one, she just like wants to be a good, she wants to be fit for the race, you know? Right. You know what? No, I agree with you. I I changed my words on that because I think that you're right that in the context of this scene, there isn't like a whole lot now that I'm rewatching it. The only thing that she says is that the competitive spirit is needed in an athlete. Like it's a good, healthy instinct Mm -hmm. to go for the gold, to go for number one. That's how, you know, that's what separates good from great. And in a way she's right. She's like, you got to want the ball 
Uh, you got to mm-hmm. want that in order to win. Right. You can't be shying away from it. And Ed kind of just walks away. He's like, all right, that's, you know, I'll see you later, Kim. And then he takes it upon himself to try to fix Kim's external validation or uh, the perceived external validation, which I guess we as an audience member are meant to see this as because apparently there is that like to Ed's argument. He's saying that this race will never be enough. Right. Even if she wins it, that she's going to go for the next better line, mm-hmm. uh, the next better trophy, the next better thing. So continually seeking that validation, right. external validation. Yeah, that's that that is a pretty powerful um pretty powerful moment there. But um yeah, Ed Ed is going to you know, he's he's her shaman, so he's going to he's going to try to take the matters into his own hands to make sure she gets well. So he follows the green man down a dark road. Uh, he comes to, actually, that is like a commercial break. We just see him like following the green man. But then when we come back and we fade up, uh, he comes across an entrance sign. It's like says, personal demons, a mobile home community. And mm-hmm. he enters into this, uh, you know, setting of trailers and Christmas lights. He even like bumps into, this could have been a deleted scene, but it's, it's fun enough. Uh, he bumps into... The trailer for, you know, I guess he's looking for the green man. He's like, oh, no, the green man doesn't live here anymore. He moved elsewhere in the trailer park. Uh, But, Ed, you know, you can see the sign. Uh, I don't know if you see the full sign outside of the trailer, but you see enough of it in the different coverage that you can read. It says codependency. Mm -hmm. So Ed has found the demon of codependency and... It's, I don't know, what what is this scene? It's just like this poor schmuck who, uh, you know, want, wishes Ed would hang out with him more or something. He's like, no, come on in. I got margaritas. Don't leave me. Right. Uh, it's kind of a cute idea. Yeah. Like, I see what's happening here. You're having them literally come up so you can talk with them. It gets the point across. <laughs> yeah. I'm not, I'm not going to dog on it at all. In fact, you know, I, I'm pro Pro this, this fun, um, like I'm pro exploring this, fun this right here. Uh, exploring this little world that they've created. Right, it's some northern exposure weirdness <laughs> going on in here, and we see Ed go to the next mobile home, which is going to be housing external validation. And I think the big thing in this scene, other than the actual content itself, is the car that's outside the home. Mm-hmm. It's a really impressive car. They say, like, nice Beamer and everything. And I think that plays into the other car that we saw with uh, Dr. Saperstein. I think that car represents being really driven. In fact, they even use that exact line. They say <laughs> yeah. that Kim is very driven. She comes from a family of people that really drives her to go for the gold and these cars themselves also drive. And I don't think it's a mere coincidence that we get an emphasis on a car on Dr. Saperstein and an emphasis on a car outside external validation. Both of them are just symbols of what you think it is to be fast. Yeah. Interesting. Ed is here to basically be like, yeah, you got to leave Kim alone and external validation also called Oscar Pulitzer. I forget like the, he's like, you know, gives him a name for whatever reason. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't know what the significance of that is, but, uh, well, I guess the green man isn't called, um, I'm not called like self-confidence or whatever. He's called green man. So this is Oscar Pulitzer, the way that external validation manifests itself. Uh, but he tells Ed like, look, man, you're not going to win. Kim is, you know, he's been chasing after me since she was seven years old. When she picked up the clarinet, we're made for each other. He says, so she's, had this long problem of um, seeking external validation, I think. 
What's really strange is that he hands Ed a t-shirt of Hard Rock Cafe. Yeah, I was trying to, it's a joke, I'm sure. I'm guess, I guess that's their like nudge at Hard Rock Cafe just being about like looks or something. I don't know, like external validation there. Like there's, there's not really, I don't know, because most Hard Rock Cafes are kind of just like a weird sort of cliche, you know, restaurant. The restaurant itself isn't very great. They just have like cool rock memorabilia inside or something. I guess. I've never been to Hard Rock, so I don't know what they're trying to say. <laughs> just a dig, I guess. Um, it's a fun joke, I think. But Ed is like, okay, all right then. And he starts to like unzip his leather jacket. I was like, I thought he was about to pull something out. I was like, he's about to like pull a gun and just like blast. That's what I thought too. I was like, he's got a gun. I was packing heat. <laughs> yeah. He's like, all right then, I guess I have to kill you. Uh, not too far from it though. He just starts to take off his jacket because they're going to fight. He's like, your uh, external validation is like, you're going to fight me for Kim? And Ed is like, yes, I am. Let's get it on. I like, again, you mentioned this, Charles. It's like, we see now after the first encounter with the green man that Ed had, he's got his confidence here. Like he knows that he is a shaman and like, this is what shamans must do. I don't know that he's like confident that he's going to beat external validation, but he's confident. He's like, I got to do this for my patient. And uh, yeah, they're, they're going to start fighting, I think. <laughs> yeah. And the next scene actually, oh, 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 I'm sorry. Actually before, yeah, before we do get there, my bad. Uh, as they're like getting ready to fight, or it might be in the next scene, but the green man is there and he's like talking to Ed. He's like, remember that fight you had in eighth grade and uh, your rival like punched you in the nuts and you fell to the ground right in front of your girlfriend. That was so like embarrassing to you. And Ed is like still, you know, he's like, he's like, take, yeah, he actually underneath all of his clothes, he's got like, I guess like shaman clothes underneath it. It's sort of like furs mm -hmm. or something. So like Ed doesn't waver despite the green man sort of egging him on. I wanted to bring this up because I could be misremembering, but I want to say Ed's first like romantic partner was Lightfeather, right? That is true. I, I want to so. say that Lightfeather was like the first real romantic partner, yeah. whereas this one might have been like just maybe like, he did have a just a girlfriend in eighth grade, I guess. Yeah, it's one of those. Very things. possible for sure. Um, just want to check the the Bible there. I don't know, um, but uh, the next scene because they start fighting, right? Yeah, we get like some music that's playing. Do you know? Do you know what this music is? I yeah, I saw. I looked on Moose Chick, who usually lists all the songs. This is. Cavalleria Rusticana by Mascagni. It's very classical music. They're doing this sort of strange wrestling, um, almost like grappling, like hand-to-hand, uh, -hand, like pushing back. And, like their hands are kind of clasped, right, in like a grapple, and they're like kind of doing a test of, test of strength maybe to pin the other to the ground. And it looks like a pretty, like, close fight, I think. Um, but the the technique I wanted to point out here, the weird style, sort of like feels like an old silent movie in a way, but in color, because like there's no sound in the scene, as you mentioned. It's the score, that sort of classical music score, and it's very blurry. It's actually kind of like, a, it almost feels like it's at a slightly slower speed, right? It seems like a little slow-mo in a mm -hmm. way. Yeah. And all the demons are there circling around them, like cheering and stuff. Very strange. Yeah, is it just me or does it devolve even further into like kind of like a primitive cave painting 
And yeah. Maybe it's because of the orange color. It does, yeah. And that's kind of gives it, it's like, yeah, you're right. It's very warm and orange. It gives it like this weird, like mythic quality of like legends and paintings and things. And uh, as I wrote down, just imagine changing the channels like back in 1994. <laughs> like, <laughs> come across this. There's a few moments like that in Northern Exposure where I wonder. What would you do? Like if you, if, would you like just keep, cause sometimes you're in a rut where you just like keep pressing the channel, but I don't mm-hmm. know. I, I would feel I would have to be like, wait, what is happening on my television? I have to stop and see. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's not made clear who the winner or the loser is. Right. Like I, I think that Ed's taking a little bit of a beating, but we, we cut away from this to go back to the real world. Ed's having a dream. He's tussling all over his bed and Maggie is checking up on him mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, Maggie fetches him out to bring him to go see Dr. Saperstein. Yeah. I wanted to point out the the reason why Maggie uh, comes to check on Ed is because she found some pajamas in the middle of Main Street. Oh, yeah. Mrs. Grippo ran them over with her truck. She's like, are these your PJs, Ed? Like, what's going on? We're like, uh, those are actually the same pajamas from the Three Doctors episode where Ed is like sleep flying. Remember, he like wakes up in a tree. Mm-hmm. And he's in pajamas. It's like the same design. So, uh, yeah, got some co- continuity on the costume there. But you're right. They go see Dr. Saperstein uh, because it turns out Dr. Saperstein reports, Ed, you're very dehydrated and uh, we got to get you like on an IV. I thought it was really cool. And this scene, whenever um, they're like, Ed, what were you doing? His first response, I think one of the first things he says in this weird frenzy is uh, he's like, I got to get back home and start working on my script, which to me is, again, like him trying to eschew like shamanism. He's like, I need to I can't be the two things at once. And like, I'm not made to be a shaman. I need to focus on being a filmmaker. That's what I'm good at. Yeah. Ed makes a reference that he was out at Coffee Pot Mountain. I think they have to preface and they say like, excuse me? And then Maggie says like, oh, that's like the the alternative name for it. Yeah. He says the Indian name, I guess. And uh, he's like, yeah, it's Coffee Pot Mountain. Oh, okay. Yeah. And they're saying like, oh, you went there without cold weather gear. And they're like, you know, how long were you gone? And surprisingly, <laughs> it was for like three days. He says three days and three nights. And then Ruth Ann, who's also in there with him, she's like, Ed, what are you talking about? You're in the store yesterday, <laughs> which is funny. <laughs> but like, yeah, I guess his like... Whatever this battle was, removed from our mortal realm, you know, Ed was wrestling with external validation for three days and three nights. It's crazy. Uh, yeah. Uh, then they poke him up with high V. Yeah. He's like, yeah, Ruth Ann's definitely very concerned, but Doc, Doc Saperstein's like, I'm going to put him on an IV. Don't worry. He's going to be fine. Uh, and sure enough, like, I think the next time we see Ed, he's back at home and, um, Kim and Maggie are coming to check up on him. He's doing better, but he's still got to drink his like prescription high nutrient drinks and things like that. You know, I've got a sound bite here because like, so Kim wakes up Ed and he's like, look, I'm just going to cut right to the chase. Kim, I'm going to come right to the point here. Physically, your elbow's not as bad as you think it is. Are you thinking about my elbow still? I tried to fight external validation for you, Kim. He's just too tough got to fight him yourself. I can't do it for you. See, Kim, your head is telling you that you've got to be number one or you have no identity. But your heart is telling you something completely different and it's talking to your elbow. Yeah, but Ed, she really wants to be number one. No, Maggie. It's just that, well, what if she comes in number two? 
Well, then she's number two. No, it's not, well, then she's number two. My whole family will be there, my friends. <sighs> like the clarinet, Kim. Did I tell you about my clarinet? You quit. You gave up all that music because your cousin Gina was the lead singer in a garage band. You just knew there was no way you could compete with that. I really like how the whole clarinet thing is actually real like that, you know, because external validation mentions that uh, when Ed meets him for the first time. And Ed says this to, uh, to Kim and she's like, wait, when did I tell you about that? But also it is like, it does give us some like insight to see how like a very young Kim could have felt like worthless or, you know, not enough. You know, she didn't feel like she was good enough. Uh, this whole anecdote about like her cousin being the lead singer in this like little garage rock band, you know, so much cooler than the clarinet. So she just gave it up. And I don't know, at least for me, I like connected to that when like you compare yourself to other artists, you know, sometimes that can be really rough, uh, just to yourself. If you start comparing yourself to other artists, but, um, that I guess is why she took up racing and it was something she was good at. So she's like trying to be the best, which she'll, you know, you'll never be. Yeah. And I think it's nice that Ed points out that like she is decrying a lack of identity if she comes in second. So like mm-hmm. her whole entire thing is built upon being first, which is flimsy at best and detrimental at worst because um, you really just can't place your identity onto something so unstable. So Ed is helping her uh, realize this. And like you said, I think it's nice that the clarinet was a real thing. Like that was actually something that bothered her. And yeah, she needs to, she needs to come to a place in which she can accept losing. Yeah. That's also really cool. Just this perspective that, her mind has one goal that's different from her heart. And the thing is like the heart can't communicate to the mind because it has its own goal. So it communicates these feelings to her elbow. That's the way Ed put mm. it. I thought that was pretty interesting. <laughs> I like it. Uh, anyway, yeah, I think um, the next time we see them, I think uh, Saperstein's there. Yeah, because it's like Ed, Saperstein, and Kim and Kim's elbow is a little bit better now. It's enough that she can start racing. You know, it's gotten better. And um, she's like, you know, thanking Saperstein, I think. But also, like, she's like, also Ed, though. Like, I think Ed actually is the one who kind of put me in the right mindset, which is, I think she's most, she's, she's thanking Ed. I think Saperstein is sort of like taking the credit, maybe. And she says, like, Ed was the one who really helped me, like, get in this right mindset where, Uh, I visualize my goals and for me, like this race is going to be like, I have a chance at beating my personal best in this race. And that's what I'm going to focus on. And Saperstein, it's like, I don't know if I really caught the, I think it's a joke they're trying to do in this scene. Saperstein's like, oh, it's like inner golf. And they, I don't know, they sort of have like a brief conversation where Ed and Saperstein are trying to talk about the same thing, but there's definitely a disconnect going on. I don't know. Did you get anything from that little exchange, the end of that scene? I mostly just got that you have to focus on a personal best. Yeah, that um, part. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of strange. Like you pointed out, it's opposite to what's happening with um, uh, the other racer mm-hmm. who is wanting to just like win and just 
not care about it. But I guess his is a little bit of a different case because he's also not settling on a personal best. He's being goaded into right. what he's a perceived personal best. So hers is like the best way to reconcile trying to keep up with the athletic fire, trying to stoke it, while also realizing that it, like if you don't live up to it, it's not the worst. Mm-hmm. And then I would say like, a typical ending for this storyline would be like, and Kim wins in the end, you know? But I really mm-hmm. like that uh, we don't see the end of the race. We see the racers going and we see them like, you know, racing uphill and around corners and stuff. But we just cut to, you know, executive produce David Chase. We don't see who actually won the race because I don't think that's really what that storyline is trying to, it's communicating like it doesn't matter who wins there. Right. And I think I like that's, it. yeah, I agree. I like that, that it doesn't show... If their goals were achieved, it's the process that matters. Mm-hmm. Well, let's rewind to the beginning of our, well, close to the beginning of the episode. We're going to jump now to Marilyn and Ted. And uh, I guess it's really kind of, it's a lot of Ted, but it does, you know, it's their relationship as well. I love all the stuff inside Lester's like new house where they're building because it's a lot of like walking through sort of the beams of the house and like the skeleton there and uh, lots of tracking shots where we get a lot of movement, so much action, so much business is happening all around. They've got workers, construction, I believe. The scene that we get to next uh, is like Maurice going over to Lester's house to kind of like see like what's going on, you know, just checking in. And Lester's complaining about like safety codes and how much like money he's going to have to spend to to do this and that because of these particular codes, building codes or something. And uh, Lester's just kind of bragging about how Ted has got like this amazing like power generator system. I think like... um think it's like solar panels is what they're talking about because it's something where like Lester's going to be able to generate his own power. He won't even have to like pay for electricity. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that he talks about this observatory mm-hmm. and how proud he is that he's going to have the ability to see the stars. But the reason he can do this is because he owns a large amount of land in order to pull off this feat yeah. right here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that will tie in, I think, to like I'm a, I'm a, what I'm drawing from that what you're saying Charles is like maybe the the ending quotes that Marilyn gives about like what does it mean to own this land and also I guess throughout this episode what does it mean to be wealthy the next time we see Ted he's got the house or he's got like some of the rooms all wired up and Lester is already wanting to change uh, the sort of the geography here, like he wants to swap one room for the other. Basically something like the jacuzzi is in the wrong room because if we put it here, we're going to be looking at like a garage where like if we swap it with this other room, we'll get a beautiful view. And Ted's like, well, I mean, I already wired everything. I'll have to rip it out and redo it. And uh, ultimately Ted sort of like abdicates. He's like, yeah, I'll rip it out, redo it all. Lester says something like, you know, blueprints are just that. So Ted's got to do extra work. Of course, I mean, like, he's going to have to get paid for it, I think. We'll, we'll talk about that later in the episode. Uh, <laughs> but um, the, the big problem right now that it's causing is just, like, eating up Ted's time. Because this is, as I sort of foreshadowed earlier, coming up on, like, the six-month anniversary of Ted and Marilyn's relationship. So, like, right towards the end of this scene, Lester, you know, it's kind of a downer, but Lester does, like, invite Ted to come hang out. He's like, you know, why don't you come over later? We're going to have, like, some Filipino 
barbecue and we'll be talking with my friends, watch the game, have some nice drink and food. And so I was like, okay, that's kind of nice. Like Lester is like wanting to be a little more personal with Ted. It's not just like him trying to get a good deal and trying to overwork Ted. He wants to be a little more personal, but turns out Ted didn't mention this, but he's got to, in the very next scene, go to Maryland and be like, Hey, sorry, I can't, I can't do this dinner. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately he's going to have to cancel plans on Maryland right here. And Maryland's pointing out that like, why can you just say like, you want to do this later? Yeah. She points out like, you, you know, he's like overworking you like this. I mean, it sounds like the way I read it in the last scene was like, oh, he wants to like hang out with uh, Ted more, but Ted doesn't even want to do that. And in, in a way, it's more like work for Ted to go to this hangout with Lester, right? Right. And you can already see like it's standard troubles that's happening where he is prioritizing his career over uh, the relationship. Mm-hmm. And we can see this carry out into the next scene where he's with Lester and he's with a bunch of other people that are you know, talking about high minded things, talking about going to museums and what is and what is not cinema. <laughs> uh, and at the end of this scene, when all the guests leave, when it's just Lester and Ted, Lester goes into like this really strange spiel about not being rich. He's saying like, yeah. I wish I was so rich that I just wouldn't care about any amount of money that's being spent. Mm-hmm. I think that like there's there's two things going on here. Either Lester knows what he's saying and he's saying this to be manipulative mm. to try to be like, <laughs> oh, look at me. I'm not as rich as you think I am. Yeah. Like, you know, I'm just trying to save a little, a little penny. I'm, a, you know, I'm living below the the poverty line over here. We really think about it, you know, and he's doing some like really weird twisted things, which is like obviously messed up or two. He genuinely believes it. He, he yeah. thinks that like, you know, I'm not rich enough, which is a phenomenon that rich people do experience. They think that they actually aren't rich as much as the richest man. If you go up and ask somebody that's incredibly wealthy, if they're in a position to donate, oftentimes they'll say no. They'll say like, no, I'm not as like, I, I, I'm not rich enough. That's like, yeah, where, where do you think the rich enough is? Like you're already in like the top 0.1%. Like yeah. where do you think you need to be financially in order to be in a state in which you feel that you can donate a little bit of your money? And the answer is almost always never enough. Yeah. That's just something that happens. He says that he wants to be like Armand Hammer. Mm-hmm. It was his American business manager who I think he owned Occidental Petroleum mm-hmm. or at the very least he was, you know, highly influential within that business. The interesting thing about Armand Hammer is that his great grandson is Army is Hammer. Army Hammer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> His second Nepotism. thing is, no, I'm just like, I yeah, know. yeah. I mean, it totally is. I mean, he's <laughs> incredibly wealthy. He bought out the Arm and Hammer brand company. Oh, like you know the one that sells like yeah. uh, baking soda and stuff. Did he just buy yeah. it because of the name? Yeah, that's all. <laughs> that's, that's how wealthy pretty, he is. <laughs> that's ridiculous. Uh, yeah, no. Just just to talk back about that about like never being rich enough. I think that definitely you could tie that into some personal demons, you know, external validation of that Kim has. You know, it's similar. Like I remember Ed is telling her like this: you win this race, but it'll never be enough. The next one, you know, it'll never be enough. And I think right, that's, right. We can you know we could see that with Lester. And I, I agree with you, Charles. I think it's the second option where like he really does believe what he's saying. He's not trying to be like slyly manipulative, which could also make sense, but I think it's the the latter. 
Um, he also points out like all these people that were hanging out with me, my friends, they're each taking a percentage. I guess he's in business with them and they all take like a percentage. He says like, it's draining. Maybe tying into what you're saying, Charles, is like he might want to present as not being the richest, but I think it's more just like he he can never feel satisfied, I guess. And like none of his friends are, to him, they're all just like part of that uh, that machine of like never being able to overcome that. He can't just like have friends, it turns out. Yeah, interesting scene that I think will play a lot on Ted that we're going to see throughout this episode. Uh, the next time we do see Ted, I kind of want to say it's like when he's going to see Maurice. Do you remember that? Is that the next? Uh, no, 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 no. There is one. There's one more scene mm-hmm. where he goes and sees Marilyn at her at Joel's office. Great scene. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, two things are happening here. One, Dr. Saperstein comes back in. And apparently he was out skiing with some friends. <laughs> guess, yeah. Uh, yeah, he just couldn't pass up the opportunity. He comes in and they introduce each other and he's like, all right, time to get back to work. Not entirely too sure what that scene is trying to demonstrate, but the it important was, um, thing. I think the only thing was like he was going to see Marilyn and she was going to be like, I'm sorry, I can't have lunch with you, Ted, because I have to like stay here. Saperstein is like running late and I've got to like show him around. So it's just like more strain on their um, oh, okay. on their anniversary. Yeah. Okay. I understand that. The second half is much more interesting, though. Ted pulls out a bracelet and it's not like a super fancy bracelet or anything like that, but it's more of something to just say like, Oh, you know, we're in a relationship and I want to just give you something. Mm-hmm. And Marilyn loves it. Yeah. But she also points out that like, Oh, it's the thought that counts. And to Ted, he's saying like, it's, it's not the thought that count. Things count too. I almost didn't want to give it to you. Why not? It's plain. Uh, it's simple, but it's pretty. And it's a thought that can't. Great. Well, what'd I say? Well, I wanted to get you something nice. I didn't want to get you some cheap bracelet and pretend it's the same as diamonds. It's not the same. And it's not the thought that counts. Things count too. Well, not to me. Ted is a person that's really buying into this idea that Lester is saying that, like, you gotta wanna consume. You need more mm-hmm. and you need your material values to also reflect that. So the more that you have, the more land that you have, the more stars that you can see, that's the important thing. Yeah. He's like, people want nice things, you know, they like, or they like having nice things. But I like that Marilyn at least is like, not me, you know, it's the thing, it's the, it's the thought that counts to me. So, mm-hmm. you know, she doesn't care about that other stuff, I guess particularly when it comes to like their relationship. That's not, that's not a factor for her. I think Ted is maybe getting sidetracked on some things here, but with the relationship, it's never about like Marilyn was never interested in Ted because he could provide for her or something. They just like, they like each other a lot, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, they had a nice thing going. And um, I just want to say, man, I, I really do like, I think it's the look of this actor, Ted. Um, also the way, just the way Ted and Marilyn play off each other as characters. But I think, I think I like the performance a lot in this scene too, of just seeing him like struggling with these ideas of, uh, materialism and wealth and, uh, voicing that, you know, I like mm-hmm. hearing him say that too. It's good. It's a good, uh, a good, good plot line for me in this episode. Yeah. I think that Ted is a lovely addition to Marilyn's life. Yeah, it's a great great uh, development here for her storyline. I'm really bummed that this is his last appearance, but uh, we'll continue with the storyline here now. 
And the next scene, he's back at the uh, at the construction site with Lester. And uh, yeah, it's funny. They kind of talk a little bit. Lester's like, I think my wife secretly resents me uh, because, you know, I was never around when the kids were, you know, in their school play or graduating or whatever. You know, I was business. Like, how do you think I made this much money? Um, he's like, doesn't your girlfriend, uh, ever get mad about your career? And he's like, yeah, it happens a little bit. And, um, I think the main thing in this scene that, uh, <laughs> that really stood out to me is like Lester is not, uh, not happy with the cost of Ted's work. Like Ted has the, the cost all written up and he's like, whoa, 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 what's going on here? Like, can't you like, Lester's asking him to take less of a commission, asking Ted to take less of a commission so that mm -hmm. Lester can save some money here. He says things like, you know, I thought we had a bond. Uh, Ted says, what do you mean? Like Native American discount? Lester's like, you know, whatever you want to call it. Uh, he's like, I work with like, I try to, when I can, I try to work with my people, you know? Uh, Ted calls him out. He's like, cause actually Ted got this job because the original electrician was fired. I believe the original electrician from this line that Ted gives is like, insinuates that he was like a white guy probably. Cause he's like, what about, right. what about the last guy? And then, oh yeah. Then Lester says, what do you mean? He's gone now, isn't he? It's like, you're here. Uh, the other guy's gone just like Custer. I don't know. It's like, he's really trying to play into this like native American vibe now that Ted said like native American discount. It's just on so many levels. So messed up. Like this is, if you do respect Ted as a friend, which we learn from Lester, his friends aren't friends. They're just uh, draining money from him, apparently. Right. You see this play out in the next scene as well. Mm -hmm. I want to connect this with uh, the one that's happening with Maurice. So Maurice has like a broken, uh, it's like this wine cooler, mm -hmm. like the refrigeration right. for it. It's become broken. And so he calls on Ted to like immediately come over and fix it. And Ted's saying like, oh, it's because you didn't vacuum the just, coils underneath here. I just want to point out real fast. Uh, do you remember when his uh, greenhouse his greenhouse like had asbestos or whatever. It was mm -hmm. because like, didn't Walt say like, you know, you got to change your air filters like once a year. Oh, we sent yeah. out flyers. <laughs> Maurice has got the dirtiest house like on earth. <laughs> funny. Yeah. Uh, well, it turns out that he's going to have to replace the whole thing. Mm -hmm. But Ted makes a little remark and says like, it's not a big deal. You have a lot of money. Right. And Maurice is like, well, what do you mean by that? Like, I take that as an insult. Mm -hmm. And Ted says like, no, well, I'm just saying that you and Lester are both really well off and you can afford to do these types of things. Maurice says like, well, how do you think, how do you think that they amassed their wealth in the first place? It's because of like being a smart, crafty businessman, but in actuality, it's not. It's because yes, in some way they did have really smart business deals, but in other ways they were taking advantage of the goodwill of other people. Yeah. So for Ted, in order for him to save a little bit more money, he's having to cut Ted's salary down, right. which is obviously anybody can look at this and be like, you have enough as it is. Mm -hmm. Why are you cutting his you know, commission even more lower than what it, it probably he's probably not even making that much, yeah. to be honest. Yeah, exactly. And that's like what, so like Maurice is like kind of like being nosy. He's like, well, tell me like how much you think it costs. And like Ted comes out and says like, yeah, it's like going to be like a half a million dollars for this one studio alone. And I have to cut him a discount now. And, you know, Ted's basically just like, I expected more. I didn't expect that 
what Marie says is like, you know, the reason why, as you're saying, Charles, like the reason why he's so rich is because like his whole life or that's the way he does business is he tries to squeeze out as much money as he can and try to save as much as he can. Uh, it's not that he has all this money. It's because he does like these like shady things like that or like kind of disrespectful things that he is in this position with all this money. And, you know, that's at least the, the explanation that Maurice gives. And I like that Ted's like, you know, I expected more from, from Lester. And Maurice is like, that's your mistake. Well, that was your mistake, wasn't it? There's like a quote he throws out. I actually saw this on Moose Chick as well. Uh, Maurice says that Fitzgerald said, the rich are different, they have more money. According to, uh, I think on the Moose Chick page, I think the original quote is uh, Fitzgerald said, the rich are different. And then Hemingway said, they have more money. Mm. So I don't know exactly what that's from, but uh, but that's the button on this scene, right? The rich are different, they have more money. Right. I'm glad there was like one more scene because I thought that was the final scene. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, that's terrible. We get to the final scene, which is going to be Marilyn and Ted having a picnic outside. Mm-hmm. And it's like the f- one scene in which they are outside. I'm pretty sure the other scenes featuring them have always been inside a building. Yeah. And Marilyn is talking about the idea that like you can't really own land. Right. The chief Seattle thing. Right. She's saying like... Despite all the money that you have and all the things that are thrown out, it, it just, it's sad. Yeah. She says of, um, of Lester that he's sad, he's homesick because he lost mm-hmm. touch with the old ways. And Ted says that too. He's like, it's weird. Like just being around these people with so much money, like Lester just is depressed. He makes me feel depressed, you know, but us out here, like Marilyn and Ted, look amazing, fabulous. Like the sun is like, particularly Marilyn too, like the sun is right behind her. So it's like kind of lighting up the back of her hair. They're just out in this beautiful nature. As you said, Charles, maybe the first time we see them out in nature in this episode feels very serene and they're just having a KFC picnic. I wanted to point that out as well. They're like, Oh, is that what they're eating? Yeah. They're eating KFC. It's just like the simple pleasures, you know? And I think that's, that's, that's really what the scene is trying to put across that uh, hopefully Marilyn and Ted can enjoy themselves. Uh, Ted, at least, you know, he doesn't have to worry about these like diamonds over this like simple bracelet, you know, it's, uh, it's this moment is like what he, what he wants to, you know, live for. Those are the things that matter. Oh, you know what? I really loved what uh, Ted says in that earlier scene with the bracelet. He's like, I, ne- I used to never worry about money uh, because like I never had it. So I was like, I would never care about money. It's not the thought that counts. Things count too. Not to me. I always said to myself that money doesn't matter. But that's because I know I'm never going to have it. So I don't let it matter. But you see nice stuff. And you want it. Everybody wants it. I wish you hadn't stopped by. It's just like mm. sort of like ruining. So he's him. always comparing himself. Yeah. 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 That's okay. a good point too. Yeah. Now comparing himself to others, kind of like uh, Kim compared herself to her cousin, the singer. But yeah, this is, uh, this is a great, another great moment because maybe a little cliched with Northern Exposure, we get, a, we get another 
voiceover Marilyn like ending, you know, with the the sort of like pan flute music coming in. It's very serene. She has like a very calming, uh, matter of fact voice. I also think like just even the reaction shots that we get of Ted, like very simple, but super effective because uh, we hear Marilyn's voiceover like talking to him. When we see his reaction, we see the uh, wheelchair racers. I don't think I can play the soundbite because there is music. It might just be um, like original score by David Schwartz. But what Marilyn does quote at the end, of course, the chief Seattle, like how can you own the air? Uh, how can you sell the air? You know, Lester can't really own the land. She says, our dead never forget the beautiful world that gave them being. They still love its winding rivers, its great mountains, and sequestered vales, and they watch in the tenderest affection over the lonely-hearted living, and often return to visit and comfort them. Which is like she says she's quoting Chief Seattle there. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. Do you take any meaning from that other than just sort of like reflecting on the idea that like maybe when you're alive, like this money and materialism matters a lot to you. But like at the end, when you're dead, it's, you know, our, our spirits will remind us that like, it's not about owning these things. It's like those things that give us life and enjoyment. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I pretty much had just have that. I'm sorry. That's, yeah. I think that really nails it on the head. <laughs> yeah. I think that's, that's it on top of just like having Marilyn say some, you know, wise stuff to close out the episode. It's just very kind of cliche in a way of a Northern exposure. But yeah, I mean, really love Marilyn and Ted. I was like, you know, the music, the words, it's really got to me. And just like Ted's reaction, like looking at her at Marilyn when she's saying all of this really makes me just miss the future Ted that we won't have. You know, there's not going to be any more Ted in this series. But I mean, he's, he kept acting in other stuff. So um, maybe I'll, I'll probably watch him in something else down the line and be like, oh, Ted from Northern Exposure. Okay, Charles, now's the point in our podcast where we invite on a guest, someone who has never seen Northern Exposure before, get their outsider opinion, uh, just their thoughts on the episode. What do they think about the plot or the idea of this TV series as a whole, just taken from this one episode? And today, our guest was actually recommended by a previous guest on the podcast, recently actually on the Patreon, our friend Alberto. Uh, he came on and watched Cliffhanger with us. We watched Cliffhanger for the Patreon and gave some commentary for that. And Alberto mentioned that his partner, Annabelle, would be interested in hopping on the show. And hey, perfect candidate because she's never seen a single episode of the show before this and I guess had never heard of it before. So Annabelle, thank you for watching and can't wait to hear what you thought of this episode. Hello. So I just watched Northern Exposure Season 5, Episode 22, Grand Prix. Um, I have never seen the show before, so it was definitely interesting to get a 90s flashback. I think it was 90s. <laughs> um, yeah, just really interesting. Like, are the demons real? There's so many questions about everything. Also, they did not show who won the race, which is probably like all the buildup and then you don't even know who won the race because I hope think of the whole point of the show is that it doesn't matter who wins it's about your character and who you are which the show seemed to do a lot of, of showing like how people really are and showing their true nature which I think is very interesting the idea that everyone has demons but 
it's like a metaphor that we all have things that our worst attribute and how it defines us as a person or how we can let it not define us as a person. Maybe I'm reading too much into that. Uh, the show is definitely interesting. I liked it. It's kind of a nice little, like, make you think about things. I liked Ed. I think he was gung-ho. He was fighting demons in the middle of the night. Ended up getting severe dehydration. That's terrible. I definitely want to look up the rest of the show and see what else it's about because it looks interesting. If this is season five, I can't imagine season one. And thank you for introducing me to Northern Exposure. That was Annabelle's thoughts on the episode right at the top. She said she really enjoyed the 90s sort of flashback feel. And she was actually kind of unsure, like if it actually was the 90s. It is the 90s, actually 1994. Charles, I forgot to mention in the and when we did the credits at the top, the air date for this episode was May 9th, 1994. So very much in the heart of the 90s. Yeah, definitely in the heart of the 90s. You can feel it right there. You can see all the quirky things that are showing that Annabelle really liked. Uh, for instance, is the demons. Mm-hmm. Um, she was a really big fan of them. One of the neatest things that she said about the demons was that they showed your true nature. And Mm -hmm. that everyone has a demon and you can either let those worst attributes define or not define you as a person. Yeah, it's like how how do our demons define us? How can we go beyond that, too? Because she pointed out like a lot of this episode was showing like the true character of people. And I can think I mean, we, we talked about it, Charles, but I can think of like Lester Haynes really being sort of a um, sort of a shady, shady practices as a businessman. And then the athlete, Kim Greer, you know, who sort of had a change of character by the end of the episode. Or um, what did she say? Visualize your goals. You know, she had like a different mindset by the end of the episode, which was nice. Yeah, she had like that vision board. How to <laughs> yeah. set this all up. She was like, all right, positive thinking. Yeah, this is how we're going to do it from here on out. Uh, <laughs> are the demons real? Asks Annabelle, what did you think, Charles? Like, yeah, are the demons real? They're real to the characters. I think so. Like, you know, because like it definitely feels like this could have been a dream for Ed, right? However, he did learn about the clarinet through this, uh, through these demons. Like uh, Kim, when she started playing clarinet as a young girl, but then gave it up. Uh, it doesn't seem like Ed could have gotten this information elsewhere. Like whenever Ed brings it up to Kim, she says, oh, wait, did I tell you about my playing clarinet? When did I say that? So there's something there. I don't know. He tap, I, Even if they're not real in our reality, I think Ed maybe tapped into some sort of uh, other shaman magic, I guess. Yeah. Like I said, even if they're not like tangibly real like you can feel and touch them and other people can see them they're real to the characters right there Mm -hmm. is definitely like the personification of ed's low self-esteem is something that is truly bothering him the Mm -hmm. external validation that kim seeks is something that kim also believes in so to the characters yeah i think that the (laughs) demons are yeah they're definitely haunting them for our purposes they're real, yeah. And I like that it is sort of like an interesting portrayal. Like maybe this is just how we're seeing their demons, but it definitely works for the episode. Uh, lastly, what I got, Annabelle said she liked Ed. You know, really, uh, I think that's just a fan favorite. Ed is always an easygoing, uh, fun time just to watch uh, in his plot lines. I actually really appreciated um, this plot line for Shaman Ed because we... I feel like 
sometimes we get shaman episodes and we're like, uh, Ed should just do more film stuff. Like, but this was, uh, quite enjoyable because I don't know, it's interesting to see how a shaman has to fight for their patient. You know, that's like a different, a different approach than what uh, a doctor would. Right. Right. Ed's definitely the fan favorite right there. I think that like, would, would you be able to be really good friends with Ed in real life? Do you find, or do you find that his uh, aloof, well, not aloof, just like a lackadaisical manner <laughs> to be something which you like you could hang out with like every day? Or is Ed one of those people that like you can see like every couple of weeks? No, I think I could hang out with him all the time. Like if I was in Sicily in a small town, because I don't feel like he's, um, I don't feel like he requires a lot of other people. He's always there mm-hmm. just to kind of hang out. Uh, he can be a, like, I, I also wanted to mention cause Annabelle was saying like, oh, this is interesting that this is season five. What is it like in season one? I'm sure there are very, they're vastly different, but, uh, I was just thinking of how in the first season, oftentimes Ed will, uh, you know, enter into Joel's cabin unannounced and Joel, obviously Annabelle, you, you may not be recognizing that name because Joel's not at all in the episode that you watched, but he is, I guess the main character of the series and uh, yeah, a lot of that first season, uh, Ed maybe uh, intrudes upon Joel too much. But to go back to your question, Charles, I don't think I would ever feel burdened by Ed or anything. I feel like it would be a comforting uh, pal to have around. But what do you think? I don't know. I feel like <laughs> if I, I can see a world in which I would get a little bit impatient with him mm. because of his... <laughs> It's not like he's malicious about it. It's just that mm. sometimes he just doesn't think about other people uh, because he's in his own world. So, like you said, like maybe he just enters into your home and he does it like one too many times and you're like, you know, you're just a little bit snappy. So you want to just be impatient with him. Uh, but otherwise, like, yeah, no, I agree. I, I think that he's a, a, a wonderful person to hang out with in Sicily. I think that I would probably... Probably would just have to like talk to him. Probably yeah. be like, Ed, <laughs> I, I know you don't mean any harm in this. Sometimes my privacy, I need to value this and you need to understand this uh, boundary. <laughs> the good thing about pretty much every character in this show is they aren't like too, I don't know, they're not um, combative or anything. Everyone's for the most part pretty accepting. And even when you disagree, like you're stuck with each other and you're there for each other. But okay, Charles, that was Annabelle's notes. Thank you so much for taking the time to watch the episode and give us your thoughts. And I'm very glad that Alberto, you know, connected us here. I'm glad you enjoyed the episode. And yeah, I would definitely recommend if you enjoyed this to check out the first season. It's pretty short, I think eight episodes and they're all pretty stellar. Um, Charles, we're going to be back next week with the penultimate episode of season five. That's season five, episode 23. The title is Blood Ties. Blood Ties. Any ideas what this episode might be about? Uh, definitely family. I'm going to guess mm-hmm. that somebody's going to come in there. We already had a plot line. I think we've had multiple plot lines where like unexpected family members came in. Uh, mm-hmm. Maurice's, uh, you know, son. Maurice's mm-hmm. son, uh, Shelly's mother coming in, uh, Ruth Ann's. I th- um, only one of their sons. Only I can't remember. One of her, had, I think yeah. we've only met one of her sons. She has two sons. Right. So maybe the second son will come. I was going to say, take, take a guess. What do you, who, whose family member do you think? Or members? Uh, I'm pretty sure Joel's uh, a single child, right? Uh, 
<laughs> if you I can't remember, remember if, if they you, ever referenced it. If you no, remember, wait, no, no, no. He yeah. has a sister. He mentioned it like offhandedly in this season that he has a sister. And yeah. had never mentioned that in any season before that. Yeah. It's crazy how Maybe they wrote that Maybe his sister in. comes into play. Uh, yeah, Let's that makes that. sense. Because, uh, yeah, we finally introduce her maybe. Um all right. Well, cool, Charles. I will uh, talk with you next week. Okay. I'll see you next week. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by me. Our theme music was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to B-Ball Y'all for the podcast artwork. And thanks to Annabelle for being our guest. If you'd like to write in, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com, at northernoverpod on Twitter. And if you like the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash northernoverexposurepodcast. And of course, thank you for listening.